Well, good morning, everybody. Man, I was driving in this morning, and uh, as I was passing cars on the highway and cars were passing me, I was looking up, and I saw this big yellow ball in the sky. It was like really weird. I was not sure what it was, but it's really nice to have a nice sunny day this morning after all of the rain. Uh, so everybody get ready to mow your lawns over the next couple of days, right? <laughs> But I'm so happy to have everybody here this morning. I want to make another announcement um, about uh, membership really quickly. Um, last week I mentioned that uh, we we're going to hold an informational meeting for membership on Sunday, October 15th. Um, and that's in your bulletin. You can see that there. Um, if you are interested in becoming a member of Morning Hour Chapel, please uh, let me know. Uh, you can send me an email through the church office. You can call me. Um, but let me know by the 12th, uh, because we've got some materials that we want to make sure that we can get printed for you. Um, membership is open to anybody 16 or older. And again, uh, one of the things that is important about membership in the Brethren in Christ Church is that there are certain positions, certain uh, slots that you can fill only if you're a member. So you can only be on the board, for example, if you're a member. Um, and we are looking for some new members. And our membership uh, Sunday will be November 19th, which is the same day as the Thanksgiving luncheon. So a lot of good things happening on that day as well. This morning we are continuing our sermon series titled, What to, Ex uh, what to Expect While You're Christianing. And we're walking through the book of James, which many believe is a really concise book on Christian living. Um, and it was actually the first book of the New Testament that was written. It was written as a letter from James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he's writing to Christians who are experiencing persecution across the known world. They have been dispersed because of persecution in Jerusalem and in Judea. And they have kind of moved out into various areas where they have started living in strange cultures, things that they're not used to, things that are putting a little bit of pressure on them as far as living a life that Jesus Christ has instructed them to live. And last week we saw that uh, in these churches, these house churches, there's been some uh, arguing, there's been some disagreeing, there's been some just fights about Scripture and fights about, well, what did Jesus actually say? And we've had these teachers that are, that are teaching and preaching the gospel. And James encourages the church to listen in humility and in meekness to learn what it is that Jesus expects of them, especially in their strange cultures, in these places that they're living. And when it comes to God's word being preached and we hear it and we, we read it, we're supposed to be quick to listen and we're supposed to be slow to speak and slow to get angry. And again, we talked about those things being important because we don't know everything. I don't know everything about Scripture. I don't know everything that God is trying to tell me, but every time I read through Scripture, every time I sit and listen to a pastor preach, I can usually get something from the Holy Spirit that tells me, hey, this is another piece of that tapestry. This is another piece of that thing that is supposed to be my Christian life. And then James um, introduces what basically becomes his overarching theme for the rest of the book. And in James 
chapter 1, verse 22, he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. And throughout the rest of the letter, James talks about Christians being people of action. And they are people of action in the way they treat each other. They are people of action in the way they treat people outside of the church. They are definitely people of action in the way they take care of people. And James fills the rest of his letter of instruction with this idea that we should be doers of the word. And he continues in uh, James chapter 1, Verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now our horseback riders, we have any horseback riders in here? Anybody rode a horse or take care of horses? We've got a couple. And you guys know what I'm talking about. You, you guys know this imagery of the bridle, right? A bridle is headgear that we use to control the movement of a horse. And it has a bit that goes into the horse's mouth, and it's attached to buckled straps uh, that then go around the horse's head. And all of that's connected to reins so that you can control whether the horse goes left or right. You can stop the horse and those things. Hopefully the horse is trained and is obedient to those commands. Unlike us sometimes, where we would probably struggle against the reins. But James is saying that we need to bridle our tongues. He's saying we need to control our speech. And there's an incident in the book of Judges, chapter 12, involving the Gileadites. These are people from Gilead. They are, they are a clan within the tribe of Manasseh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were at war with the Ephraimites, which was another tribe of Israel. So there's this infighting going on, which of course, thankfully, never happens in churches today. But back then, there was this infighting going on between these two groups of people. The Ephraimites were upset because the Gileadites didn't invite them to go to battle against another uh, group outside of Israel. And they were very upset about this because they thought the Gileadites were trying to hog all of the glory for themselves and, and, and of course, hog all of the plunder for themselves. And they were very upset. And so these two groups of Israelites went to battle. And the Gileadites won. They, were, they overcame the Ephraimites. And in Judges chapter 12, verses 5 to 6, we read about the aftermath. And what had happened is that after the battle, after everything was done, some Ephraimites had been trapped in Gilead. And they were trying to get out. They were trying to go home. And we're going to read uh, Judges chapter 12, verses 5 to 6. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. They had cut off the only way that they could get home, these, these fords along the, the Jordan. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said no trying to make them think that he's a Gileadite. They said, then say Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. And Shibboleth 
is just, a, it's, a, it's like a password. It's a basic word. It doesn't really mean anything in, except for uh, a flowing stream. And of course, they were in front of the River Jordan, so shibboleth would have made sense to say. Or maybe it means an ear of corn or grain. Those are the two ways that shibboleth is used in Scripture. And Gilead used this as a, as a kind of a test. They wanted to see, are you really with us? If you're really with us, you'll be able to say our word in the way that we want you to say it. You'll be able to, to, to pronounce the shh. And really, that's all the difference that there was. Shh. And when the Ephraimites couldn't do it, they were destroyed. They were eliminated. And today, when we refer to this word shibboleth, what we're referring to is any custom or tradition or even word choice that distinguishes one group of people from another group of people. And a lot of different groups have shibboleths. It's language and it's jargon that's specific to a group. And if you don't use it properly, if you don't use the jargon properly, you show yourself as not part of that group. So for example, any electricians in here? Anybody do electrical work at all? Okay, a couple of people do some electrical work, right? If Glenn came up to me and asked me if I was going to uh, run uh, uh, 220 through my house, I could say something like, yeah, 220, 221, whatever it takes. <laughs> and Glenn would know immediately that I have absolutely no idea what I am talking about. Right? Right? Yeah, and Glenn's like, yeah. Yeah. I at least know that much, right? But that's the thing, right? If we start trying to talk in the jargon of somebody that you know, is in a specific group and we want to try to, to act like we're part of that group, we might say some stupid things and, and not be able to actually prove ourselves, right? We might be able to fake it for a little while, but not for long. And guess what? Christianity has a whole bunch of shibboleths. We have a whole bunch of language that we use so that other people can be sure that we are in the club, right? We don't have lunch. We have fellowship. We are not sitting in an auditorium. We are sitting in a sanctuary. This morning at our church service, just after the sermon, we're going to celebrate Christ's last supper. Some other Christians are going to attend Mass, and right after the homily, they're going to be served the Eucharist. And we know by the language that we use whether or not we're in, whether or not we can be called Christian people, right? We are justified by the propitiating blood of Jesus Christ and undergo sanctification as we run the race to obtain the crown of life as priestly surveyors of that wondrous cross. Have you ever said that to a non-Christian person? You will certainly, they will certainly know that you are someone that is supposed to be called a Christian, but it won't make a bit of difference to them. They have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Just like if Glenn asked me if I was going to put 220 through my house. 220, 221, whatever it takes. All of these things are true. Right? We are saved by the propitiating blood of Jesus Christ. And we, throughout our lives, are sanctified so that we can earn the crown of life. 
when we go to heaven. But even Christians would be hard-pressed to define propitiation, sanctification, justification. Well, I'm not sure what those words mean, but I know that they're true. I know that that's what the pastor said. But we use this language. And then we try to point people to the cross with it, and they're just like, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. We try to define our religion. We try to make, let other people know that we are religious people, that we are Christian people, by the words that we use that other people won't understand. And we also try to define our religion, our Christianity, by the things we don't do. And I used to hear a lot of this growing up. Well, a real Christian doesn't dot, dot, dot. A real Christian doesn't smoke or chew or go with the folks who do. A real Christian doesn't ever drink or cuss or attend church Y when we all know that the real Christians go to church X. The things that we don't do or say and the things that we do and say, all of these things we think help to identify us as disciples of Jesus Christ, when really all they're defining is that we're trying to tell people we're religious. Trying to tell people that we're disciples of Jesus Christ is a completely different language. And a lot of us don't know how to speak it. And that's why James says that we need to bridle our tongues. James says that what we are talking about is not helping what we are saying, the things that we are doing or not doing, these customs. Basically, we're just trying to tell people that they're not part of us. Maybe we're trying to tell them that we want to exclude them. We don't want you unless you know these things already. And I used to hear that growing up a lot. Well, you've got to clean up your act. And a lot of people thought, well, you've got to clean up your act before you come to Christ. So why don't I just keep my act unclean for a while, and then when I decide that I'm tired of doing all of those things, then I'll come to Christ. And that's not what we're talking about either. But these are the things that Christianity has said for decades and, and centuries. James says when we try to show how religious we are, by using these words, by using these customs, our religion is worthless. Our religion is worthless. And it's especially worthless when we start using all of this language and we start doing all of these Christian things and all of these Christian customs while we're hiding our sinful lives when we are hiding the things that we are doing that do not please God. And James says we're deceiving ourselves. If we think that we can come to church on a Sunday morning and sing all of the songs and do all of the, we can raise our hands and we can clap our hands and we can pray and we can take communion. And if we are still living sinful lives, we're deceiving ourselves. But we're not deceiving God. 
Our religion is worthless because God doesn't want all of these things from a person who is going to sin against him. He doesn't want you to sing songs to him when you are actively living a sinful life. He would rather you stay home and go into your closet and pray for forgiveness and then come out and worship and then come out and clap your hands and raise your hands and do all of those things. What James is really saying here is that we love to talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. We will come into church on a Sunday morning, and Wendy will tell you this, sometimes you walk in and you have church face. Right? You've just had a huge fight with the kids in the car. And the last thing you say is, don't let anybody know we've been fighting. And then you walk up to the door, hi, how you doing? How's it going? This is church face. That's what it looks like. And we smile and we'll shake hands with someone before or after church and we'll say, God bless you. I hope God gives you a good week when secretly we're holding anger and resentment and jealousy and hatred towards them. We'll say things like, hate the sin, but love the sinner when our actions suggest that we do in fact hate the sinner. We condemn the actions of someone who sins differently from us while we try to hide our own sin. These are the things that James is seeing in Christians in 45 AD. And it has never changed. Paul wrote about it in 50 to 65 AD. And Peter wrote about it. And Jude wrote about it. John wrote about it. Everybody has written in the New Testament about this idea that we show ourselves to be hypocrites when we say one thing and we do another. But James goes on. James tells us what kind of religion is not worthless. And he goes on in verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to reading that next verse. I want to know what God finds acceptable. What God finds as pure and undefiled religion. And James goes on and he says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God would rather see us care for one other person in true godly love than to sing a thousand empty worship songs. God would rather see us struggle and overcome trials and temptations together as believers, as people who want to help each other to get to the finish line. Then he wants us to sit in a church building with a thousand religious talkers who are living in sin. 
God would rather see us sit down with an orphan or a widow in their affliction and to spend quality time with them than just to pray for them and send a check to whichever organization might be taking care of widows and orphans that month. And I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying those things are bad. Yes, we need to pray for people. Yes, when there are organizations that are doing really good things for widows, for orphans, for people who are in need, yes, I want to financially support them. But James is saying that's not enough. It's not enough to just pray and pay. And that's what a lot of Christians want to do. They want to pray and they want to pay and then they want to get out of there. They want to, they want to just live their own lives. They don't have to worry about it. Okay, I've prayed for them. I have sent money to an organization that's going to take care of them. Whew, I'm done. Boy, was that tiring. Praying and paying. But James says, what the Father wants us to do is visit the widow and the orphan in their affliction. And the word visit means exactly what you think the word visit means. It means go to them. It means make a careful inspection of their lives. Look at the things that are causing their affliction and then do something about it. When we visit someone, we have to show up. We have to walk into a house or we have to walk into a hospital room or we have to walk into the middle of a park where homeless people are living. We need to show up and we need to see what is distressing you because that's what we're looking at. We're looking at their affliction. Their affliction is the things that are distressing them, the things that are keeping them from being able to live lives where they can focus on anything other than what they have to eat and what they have to wear and where they might sleep that night. But a lot of times, we don't want to see people's affliction. We don't want to see what's actually happening in their lives. That's why we pray and pay. We don't want to see what's going on. We don't want to drive through downtown Harrisburg on a Friday night and see homeless people covering themselves with newspapers and cardboard boxes trying to stay warm in the cold. We don't want to see homeless people digging through trash cans and through dumpsters trying to find something, anything that would be even remotely edible just so they won't starve to death. We don't want to see, we don't want to look into the eyes of, of children who have lost their parents, children who are orphans, children who are in the foster system. We don't want to look into their eyes and see their sense of loss, their sense of desperation that someone would come and take them home. Someone would come and, and love them. And a check ain't going to do that. We don't want to see those things. Do you know why? Because it's emotionally costly. We pay a price when we see people in a distress, in affliction. And we say we want to help them. But if we don't get involved, if we don't go, if we don't visit, if we don't really know what they need, we can't help. 
We can't do anything. We certainly don't want to become emotional because that is just too high a, a price to pay. Ask yourself, have you ever been in distress? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you have been so overwhelmingly racked with trials, so overwhelmingly racked with, with debt or with hunger or with uncertainty about what's going to happen in your future that you become emotionally and spiritually paralyzed? You just don't know what you're going to do. And if you've ever felt like that, how helpful, truly, and let's be honest with ourselves, how helpful has it been for someone just to say, I'll be praying for you. Yeah, prayer's helpful. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It accomplishes a lot. But it's not enough. How much more helpful when you were in your distress? How much more helpful when you were in your affliction was it when somebody came to your house and brought you a meal and said, sit down, I'm going to warm this up for you. Let's eat together. Let's talk. Tell me what's going on with you. Tell me how I can help. And one of the problems is that we have become such a society that wants to be independent of help. We don't want people to help us. We can do it ourselves. So we don't accept help sometimes, especially Christians. Christians certainly never want to tell anybody that they're in trouble. They want to put on church face on Sunday morning and say, God bless you, everything is fine. But we need to go to them. I've been in distress in my life. And I've had people say, I'll pray for you. And I've appreciated the prayer. But I'll tell you what I've appreciated more. Somebody coming over at midnight when I'm just not able to handle life and sitting with me. We don't have to talk much. Just being there. Knowing that they love me enough to sit there with me. To spend their time. That's why we call it spending time. Because time is that resource that we never think we have enough of. How many of you think you have enough time in the day for everything that you need to do? Retirees, put your hands down. <laughs> we never think we have enough time. But we need to start making some time for people who are in distress, people who are afflicted. I had the opportunity very recently to visit a widow. First time I visited, she looked horrible. She looked miserable. She was crying. She looked up at me when I walked in and her eyes just filled up with tears. And the very first thing that she said to me is, I wish I was dead. And then she kind of backed off on that a little bit and said, I wish I was with my husband who had passed away years ago. 
I wish I was with him. And the whole visit, she was just so downtrodden. She was just so incredibly sad. And the last thing she said to me was, thank you so much for spending some time with me. And over the next couple of weeks, some other people that I know went to visit her. And it was about two, maybe two and a half weeks later, I went to visit her again, and she was a completely different person. She looked 120 the first time I went to look at her and visit her, and the next time I saw her, she looked younger than her age. And she was smiling, and she waved, and she said hi, and she hung, and she's like, she was on the phone, she was FaceTiming with somebody, and she was like, hey, I gotta go, my pastor's here, I'm gonna call you a little bit later, and the other person was like, yeah, okay, go ahead, and hang up, and I said, how you doing? She said, I've had so many people come and visit me. I've had so many people come and spend time with me, and talk to me. And it didn't cost them anything except their time. Maybe a balloon. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if they brought balloons or not. But the difference was like night and day. When we spend time with people in their afflictions, when we spend time, the difference is staggering. Be doers of the word. Not hearers only that you deceive yourself. Stop being hearers who forget what they've heard and be doers who do what you have heard and what I have heard. Because when I do something that I've heard, I remember it. It's so much easier to do again and again. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. And the other part of religion that is pure and undefiled before God, keep oneself unstained from the world. Or you could say, keep oneself unpolluted from the world. And we are increasingly faced with a world that is polluted. And I'm not talking about smog. I'm talking about evil. I'm talking about people who want to call good bad and call bad good. And think about the language that the world uses in describing things. Think about what they call good and what they call evil. I'm a teacher. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of ChatGPT. Anybody heard of this AI thing that you can type in a question? Like you could type in, uh, write me a 10-page essay on this, and it'll spew out 10 pages, and you can just turn it in. When I was in school, we called that cheating. Now it's called ingenuity. Those students are using every resource to the best of their ability to do their work. They're not learning anything, but they'll give you a 10-page paper on... Uh, you know, I don't know, beach erosion in Asia somewhere. They don't know anything, though. Sleeping around with a lot of different partners when I was young, we used to call that fornication. Now it's called sexual freedom. We're free. 
We can do whatever we want. Adultery is now open marriage. And abortion isn't the killing of unborn children, it's reproductive health care. Think of the language that the world uses to put a really, really nice face on evil. And think about the times when they call good evil. If we hold a biblical view of marriage, gender, sexuality, we are homophobes and bigots and we have no right living in society. If we say abortion is wrong, we hate women. If we try to share our faith publicly, we're called brainwashers and indoctrinators. These are the things that the world uses to call good evil. And a lot of us think that this is something new. A lot of people, and I, I, I hear people I, I, all over the place, they just, oh, this is so horrible. This country needs to get back to normal. Guess what? Evil is normal in the world. Evil is normal in the world. Saul, in 40 AD, rounded up Christians and put them in jail or killed them. That was in Acts chapter 8. The Christians in James' time, they were constantly bombarded with this idea that good is evil and evil is good. And our problem is, in the United States, we've had it really good for a while. We have had people that have said, we're going to be a Christian nation. But even then, the people that are telling us we're a Christian nation are doing things that are not Christian. And they're being seen as hypocrites. And they're painting all of us with the same brush. And saying, well, if that's Christianity, we don't want it. If that's religion, no thank you. I can do, I, I'm doing the same things they're doing already. Why do I need to join a club? That's what the world is thinking. In 1 Peter 2.12, it says that those outside the church will speak against us as evildoers. And a chapter later, he says that we can expect to be slandered and our good behavior reviled. When we act in accordance to the, the dictates of Christianity, the dictates of Jesus Christ, his teachings, the things that he told us we are supposed to be doing, they're going to call you names. They're going to hate you. They're going to try to get you fired from your job. They're going to try to get you kicked out of school. And this has happened since Christianity began, since Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This has been happening. That is the normal world. But there's good news. Because Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And if you follow me, you can overcome the world. That's what Jesus calls us to. Practicing religion that is pure and undefiled to God the Father is living unpolluted from the world, staying true to Scripture. And when the world tells us that evil is good, we call them liars. 
Well, we don't actually call them liars because we want to be really nice about it and we don't want to upset anybody. But if they're calling evil good, they're wrong. And that's all there is to it. And I think one of the problems, one of the things that, that Christians do, and, and we're all guilty of it from time to time, is that we do become polluted, whether we realize it or not, by the things that are going on in the world. We are entertained by things that the world celebrates that God calls sin. We like this TV show, even though it's got all kinds of sinful things going on in it. We like this movie, even though it tells us that abortion is okay and people that don't agree with that are evil people. We keep friends. And this is the hard one. We keep friends who would encourage us to just go along. They would encourage you if you're sitting in school and you say something profound like a man is a man and a woman is a woman. They would encourage you to keep your big fat mouth shut or you're going to get in trouble. For the adults, how dedicated are are, are we to politicians? who would encourage evil and call it good. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, living righteous lives of action against trials and temptations and living loving lives of action for those who are physically, emotionally, and spiritually distressed. And some of us, me included, we got to make some changes in the things that entertain us. We got to make some changes in the people that we say are supposed to be good for us. We need to sometimes, even if this is harsh, cut ties with friends who would encourage us to speak out against God, to call evil, good. And I'm not saying that this is about anyone in particular, and I am saying that I am just as in need of making those cuts as anybody else. But if we are going to please God, if we are going to live lives that people can look at us and be curious about who Jesus Christ is, And if we can live lives that point people to the cross of Jesus Christ, sometimes we have to make hard decisions. Sometimes we have to do hard things. And that's what James is telling us. Visit the widow and the orphan. Don't just write a check. Don't just pray. Keep yourself unstained from the world. When you do that, you're a person that God can use. You're a person that God will work through the Holy Spirit to help guide people to Him.
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this time that we can come together. And Father, we ask forgiveness. We ask forgiveness for all of the times that we have ignored the widow and the orphan or tried to pray and pay our way out of actually taking care of them. Father, open our eyes. Open our hearts. Let us desire to spend time. Let us desire to visit them in their affliction so that we can know what they need, so we can help them. And Father, forgive us for those things that we do, the things of the world that stain us. Our entertainment, our friends, our activities, the people we choose to so-called follow or trust who are actively working against you. Open our hearts and our minds. Help us to discern what it is that we should be watching, what it is that we should be reading and listening to, what it is that we should be doing, the places we should or should not be going, and the people we should or should not be hanging out with. Father, I pray that Morning Hour Chapel will become a church full of doers, that we will study and learn your word and that we will use it as the authority in our lives every single day. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Guide us with your Holy Spirit. We thank you for you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to take communion or receive the Eucharist or whatever you want to call it. But what we're doing is we are remembering Jesus Christ. And this is one of those things that we do. Jesus said, every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Now, Jesus didn't mean make this a mindless ritual that you just do once a month because you have to or because the church says that's what we're going to do. Do it in remembrance of Jesus Christ and the work that he did so that we might know God the Father. That's why we do this. If you come to communion every first Sunday of the month and it's just another ritual and you're not remembering Jesus Christ in that action, maybe you shouldn't be taking communion. We're to remember and do.
And we do so that we can remember. We're going to take a few moments in prayer and silent reflection. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember what He has done in your life. Remember where He found you and where He's brought you to. Let's pray. First thing Jesus asked us to remember was his body, which is broken for us. He knew that in less than 24 hours he would be beaten, he would be whipped, he would have a crown of thorns placed on his head, he would be nailed to a cross. Three hours later, a spear would be driven through his side. And he did those things so that we might know God the Father, so that we might be forgiven of our sins. And he said, every time you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. Body of Jesus Christ. Later during that same supper, Jesus took some wine, he blessed it, he poured it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, drink this, all of it, this is the blood of the new covenant. This blood is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. He knew that in less than 24 hours, he would be completely emptied of his blood that he poured out for us. And he asked us every time we do this, that we would remember his work on the cross. Blood of Jesus Christ. Paul gave instructions to the church about taking communion. And he said, every time you do this, you commemorate, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. You remember the things that Jesus Christ did for you. I remember the things that Jesus Christ did for me. Doers of the word, not hearers only. For hearers forget the doers, remember. Remember Jesus Christ this morning. Remember Him throughout your week. Remember the amazing grace that He has given to each of us. God bless you this week.